Few things are more startling than a sudden clap of lightning. Lightning. I mean, thunder from lightning. Sudden thunder. You didn't see it coming. I mean, I remember one day in our house, we were just going about our business, and it sounded like the lightning bolt hit in the yard. Boom! And Cindy screamed, and the dog ran for the kennel. My favorite lightning story, though, I'll tell you this. We were, when Grace Church was first, um, we were early in the church. We had been to Grace Group down Queens Creek Road to the Jars off Sand Ridge. And we were coming back, and right as we were getting back to the creek, I mean, we're talking, we're having a good time. It's summer. Sunroof is open on the car. I mean, exactly when we got to the creek. <laughs> lightning, it felt like it went right over the car. And you could feel your hair stand up. And then it hit in the water, I guess. Big noise. And I just, I'm like this. And I look and Cindy's like, mercy, mercy, mercy. (laughs) But normal. Things going along like normal. Just normal life. Normal day. And then, boom. Struck. Jolted. Scared. And then you realize you're okay. Lightning. Well, we have a lightning bolt. We have a thunder, sudden thunder. We have something jolting in the text today. And it jolted me years ago. We had come to faith. I was 26. She was 24. We were in a church, thankfully, that took discipleship seriously. And I was being discipled by this very patient man. (laughs) And, and, And so was Cindy. I mean, we were really rough around the edges. Lots of questions, lots of resistance. And uh, we had gone through the first discipleship, which is really a basic, the basics of the faith. We were in a second discipleship that they had, Growing in Grace. It was about the doctrines of grace. And so he was sharing with me election and God's sovereignty. And boy, I was fighting him big time. I was I was struggling with that. I was suffering with that. I was driving myself crazy with that. And I was fighting against him and against the word, and just didn't see how that made sense. So I get it if you struggle with that. I get it if you're not there yet. But then one day, I'm doing my normal reading, and I happen to be in Acts 13, and I happen to come to Acts 13:48, and boom, the thunder went off. My mouth dropped open. And God used that verse. I, he humbled me with it. And I had to go back to my discipler and say, I've come to see that I didn't, I don't know God the way I thought. I mean, I, I didn't know anything at that point. But I said, I don't know God the way I thought I did. So I was much more, by God's grace, submissive. But that lightning rocked my world. And that's where I'm going to focus today. I want to quickly, you know, look at the surrounding passages. And we see a lot of things happening here that we'll see happen in other places. Uh, we'll talk more about those then. And then I want to focus on Acts 13:48. And I just want to ask you to ask one question. What does the Word teach? What does this verse say? We'll start here. We'll bring in some others. But what is this verse teaching? Not how do I feel about it. Not what have I always believed. Not what I've always been taught. But what does this say? What does the Word say? And we'll look at a few other verses as we bring it into play. But my whole theological world was rocked that day and changed that day by one piece 
of one verse in Acts 13. And I want to focus on that. So let's let's look into that. But today it's 1348 where we will focus. We'll look at the other verses around it uh, briefly and, and focus there. And the main point of what, y'all, what I want you to go away with today is God's sovereignty over salvation gives us great confidence for mission. God's sovereignty over salvation gives us great confidence for mission. And first, look at the gospel resisted. Just briefly. Because that's going to be time after time after time after time as we go through Acts. But it says, They went out and the people begged that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath. And after meeting, the synagogue broke up. Many of the Jews and devout converts uh, followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, it urged them to continue in the grace of God. So disciples are being made. The Great Commission is being fulfilled in Antioch. A Pisidia, right? And so they've come into faith and they're encouraging him to, to continue in the grace of God. And then, boy, how great would this be? The next Sabbath, the whole city turns up. What if the whole city turned up wanting to hear the gospel? We, we would like that. Hopefully the troublemakers wouldn't turn up too, but it might happen. But it says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, and we've seen this in the Jews' reaction to Jesus, we've seen it already in, in Acts, and we'll see it again. They're jealous. They're not rejoicing. They're not embracing the gospel. The leadership, they're jealous, and it says they were filled with jealousy. What a statement. And begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And then when you can't win the argument, you just start talking bad about the person. Reviling him. They began to revile Paul. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. They said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Remember, Jew first, then the Gentile. You'll see that as their pattern as we walk through the missionary journeys in the cities that they go to. We have a ready-made audience in the synagogue who, who believes the Old Testament. And is, you know, it's, a, it's a great place to go to preach the gospel and show Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the word. But he says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, Jews. You can hear that. First, that since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. What a statement. You are judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. If we're rejecting the gospel, that's what we're doing. If we're rejecting Jesus... We're judging ourselves unworthy of eternal life. They were rejecting the gospel. See, it wasn't necessarily about Paul and Barnabas, right? Although they took the brunt of the heat. These people are rejecting the gospel. And so they say, okay, we're going to take this message to the Gentiles. And they show from, from Isaiah 49, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And then Jesus working through his church, taking his light, his gospel, To the ends of the earth. So they say we're turning to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing. And glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We'll come back to that. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. Notice opposition. We've seen this already. Opposition only fuels the flame of the gospel spreading. We've seen churches born because of persecution. And the, the church being scattered. And the church taking the gospel with them. Where they were scattered. The word of the Lord was spreading in the midst of 
rejection, in the midst of, of suffering. And it says, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. So they're inciting the, the people who, who call the shots in the city and stirring up persecution against Paul, Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But in obedience to Jesus and as a statement of judgment, they shook the dust off their feet as they left the city and they left disciples in the city. Even in the midst of all of this going on, it says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So we see the context is the gospel resisted. We see some initial encouragement there. They've preached the word, but disciples have been made. But then jealousy rises up, opposition rises up, and they are expelled. But God's work is not defeated. His word has gone forth. His people are coming to him. He's building his church even in the midst of opposition and sitting right in the heart of this account at the end of Acts 13 is a statement that rock my world, might rock yours. I mean, I don't know. You may embrace the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty. You may not. All I say is just sit back, relax, see what the word says. You may agree, you may not, you may be on the way, you may be struggling with it right now. I get all of that. I struggled like crazy with it. Cindy said, hmm, word, what it teaches. She was able to move on. <laughs> oh, man, I fought. But look what this says. In the midst of them turning with the gospel to the Gentiles and the Gentiles hearing the gospel through them, it says in Acts 13, 48 at the end, now watch this, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Appointing precedes faith. Point two. The appointing precedes the faith. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And that is a good translation. That's a proper translation. Some people struggle and try to turn this verse to say something else because they have a bias against the doctrines of God's sovereignty. But this verse, rightly translated, says exactly that. And literally in the Greek, the word it says, they believed as many as were appointed or ordained to eternal life. So it limits when it's what it says about they believed to that group. And and listen, if you're ever let me just say this, this is a little bit of an aside and some of you guys and some of you girls may study a little bit of Greek or you may have a a, a, a strong's concordance and and we can get in real trouble sometimes when we come to conclusions and we look at translations and our conclusion is different from the translation you're wrong <laughs> at that point. And, and there are few people walking on the planet that are more dangerous than first-year Greek students. That's the truth. You know a little bit. And you think you know a lot. And you can get in real trouble. I remember telling Cindy, I don't need all this stuff. I'm struggling through it in seminary. I have a Strong's Concordance. I can parse it, piece it out and put it together. Oh, contraire. I learned better later 
It, you know, wait for the second year and the third year of Greek and you'll begin to see why the major translations translated the things the way they did. Just be patient. Be careful. Especially with verbs in the strong concordance. Because there's only one form in the concordance and it may not tell you what form it really is in the original text. And you come to all kind of weird conclusions. But what I wanted you to show you is all of the major translations translate this verse this way. Therefore, people who are trying to come up with it's a middle instead of a passive and it means that they fitted themselves for eternity. That's a lot of error. I just give you, I, I'm not giving you an exhaustive list, but these are major translations um, that, that everybody uses. And some of them are older than others. But the American standard says as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Okay. The Holman Christian Standard, all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The ESV, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The King James Version, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. How many, how many believed? As many, as many as were ordained to eternal life. New American Standard. One of the more, most literal translations, right? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The Net Bible, which has great notes in it and about the original and everything. All who had been appointed for eternal life believed. That all is accurate. It, 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 it rightly helps with what is meant by the, some of the previous ones. Okay? Is that where we're stopping? No. NIV. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. New King James, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Even the New Living Translation. All who were chosen. Oh, no. All who were chosen for eternal life became believers. That's what that verse means. And that's where we struggle. What's the first thing we say when we're struggling with that? That's not fair. Stop. You don't want fair. Trust me. You don't want fair. You want justice? You have no gospel. You can answer on your own. We, just, we can't rationalize all these things out, but if the Word preaches it, we want to embrace it. We will never fully comprehend a lot of things like the Trinity. But I, I went through all of those translations to show you that every major translation agrees here with the ESV. That those who were appointed, passive, that means somebody else appointed, who did it? God. What is appointing here? Well, the New Living hit it. Chosen. Election. God's sovereignty in salvation. We can trust Him in a lot of areas, but we struggle to trust Him here, don't we? Usually we have lost loved ones and we, it, it creates some, some difficulty in our hearts. But the, what is He speaking about appointment? I, I'm going to keep burning this verse. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Appointing is election. It's unconditional election. It's God choosing. And we see it all over Scripture. I mean, once I got this, I saw it everywhere. I mean, we read, you know, in the Psalms. 
our call to worship. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to be satisfied, basically, in you. But look in Ephesians. We, we taught through Ephesians. You can go back and listen to that if you want to. But when, when Paul begins missing, missing, listing every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you know what the first one he talks about is? God's choice of us. Election. Look at the, watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Comma. Beginning to talk about those. Look at the first one he talks about. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Oh, here's that word. A lot of people. In love, he predestined us to adoption to himself. As sons through Jesus Christ. According to. Watch this. According to the purpose of his will. We'll bring that out a little better. And a little more later. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is Jesus. He chose us. Verse 4. In him. Before the foundation of the world. Not considering anything we had done. Because we had only done. Evil. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll see that in a minute. Look at, look at Jesus. and I really encourage you to go read John 17 and hear Jesus pray for His church, including you. But it says this in the first few verses of John 17. Stay with me now. Focus on the Word. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, so He's praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Look, watch this. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He has been given authority over all flesh and that authority is exercised here. He talks about to give eternal life to all whom you had given him. When were these people given to Jesus by the Father? One God, three persons, right? We talk about, when we make distinctions in salvation, we're talking about economic, not ontological. One God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In eternity past, the Father gave a people to the Son. The Son ag agrees to be the mediator, to come and purchase their salvation. And the Spirit to apply that salvation through the proclamation of the gospel, bringing those people to faith. And Jesus says His authority given to Him is to give eternal life to everyone who is given to Him. Notice that. I get it if it makes you struggle. Just ease into it. Sit, sit tight. But He doesn't say to give eternal life to everybody. He doesn't say to give eternal life to just whosoever He says, I'll give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So that's why I said, faith comes after appointing. Appointing precedes faith. We'll see that. And this election is not based on, this is the other thing I believe. That God looked down through the tunnel of time. And, and, and He looked for to see whoever would believe in Him. And He chose them. Because it's unmistakable when you read the Bible that there's an election going on here. 
We argue over why. And so I got that from Hal Lindsey and some other people that I was reading because I jumped straight into prophecy when I was converted. Bad mistake. That God looked to see who would believe and he chose them. And we think that just relieves everything. Well, the only problem with that. Word teaches exactly the opposite. And you know who would believe in him apart from his grace working in them? Nobody. Zip, zero, nada. We'll show you that in a minute. But it's not based on foreseen faith. Look at 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. Who said, Now, he's going to encourage Timothy in boldness and witness. Don't miss that. With God's sovereignty and salvation. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Look, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus yesterday. Sort of. Before the ages began. Gave, gave us to Christ. It was not based on anything in us, not because of our works. Look at Romans 9. And I heard, listen, don't be this person. Okay? Don't be this person. I heard the story of a preacher who didn't say what he was doing. He didn't mention anything. He just got up in the pulpit and read Romans 9. And a man stood up and said, I don't believe a word of that. Because it's pretty hard on God's sovereignty in Romans 9. And then he informed him he was just reading Scripture. But in Romans 9, 14, it says, what are we to say then? This is how I know I'm on the right track. Because when I was struggling and I heard about the doctrine of election, I said, that's not just. That's unfair. And Paul anticipates that very objection. In 9, 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. That's the strongest possible negative in the Greek. Absolutely, certainly, no way, not ever. By no means, for he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. You could say human decision. It doesn't depend on human decision. It doesn't depend on God seeing what we will do. Or exertion, but on God who, who has mercy. Why can it not depend on human will? I mean, I said it a while ago. Because human will, apart from grace, is exercised in pursuing sin. Maybe doing it religiously or irreligiously. But all people since Adam's fall are born corrupt and guilty and suppressing the truth of God, Romans 1, and seeking our own way. Paul, Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. It can't be based on us because there's nothing good for us to offer, including we would have never believed apart from his grace. Look, believe Jesus, don't believe me. Okay, John 3, 19 and 20. He says, this is the judgment. Now watch this. The light has come into the world and or but. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Now watch this in verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. 
How many people do wicked things? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. We're born with original sin, corruption of nature, running from God. We may do it religiously, like the Jews opposing Paul, or we may do it irreligiously. But we're born in this condition. And Jesus says that no one will come to the light of their own. No one of their own would decide to love and trust Jesus apart from the work of His grace. Everyone runs from the light. The light is Christ and His truth, His gospel. <clears throat> and just one more. In John 6, 44. I know there's a lot here and there's so many more I could put here. but And we can talk if you need to. But John 6.44, now watch this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You know what that word draw? That word draw is not a woo word. It's the word used for drawing water out of a whale. So you don't bend over a whale and try to woo the water out. Oh, water, please come to me. I am thirsty. No, you drag it out with a bucket. Unless the Father draws, no one can come. Because why? Because our, our wills are in bondage to sin. And that bondage is willful bondage. Because apart from His grace, we choose it. Read Luther's Bondage of the Will. I, I recommend that to you. So, so all of this to show you, go back to Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe, the appointment to eternal life comes first. And as Ephesians said, it's based on His purpose, His grace, His mercy, not on anything in us. So He didn't look through the tunnel of time to see who would believe in Him and then choose them because He wouldn't have chosen anybody because nobody would have believed apart from His grace. And all notions of provenient grace can be wiped out with the verses I, I taught, if, you, if that's even a thing for you. So, we'll move on. This could be a whole sermon series. Appointing precedes faith. Now watch this. Some people go too far in the realms of sovereignty. If God is sovereign, no need to pray. God is sovereign, no need to witness. Right? God's going to save who He's going to save anyway. I mean, William Carey heard that from, from missions board. No, the same word that teaches sovereignty teaches responsibility and it tells us if we love God, we'll keep His commandment and on and on we go. Responsibility is a real thing. <clears throat> Appointment produces faith. See, this verse has that. All who were appointed believed. No one will be saved without believing and no one will believe without the Gospel. So we must take the Gospel to them and it will be our joy if we love Him because He's commanded us to do so. See, the doctrine of election just checks our motives. I mean, are we doing it because we have rationalized everything out? And are we doing it because it... it no, it, we're doing, it gives us great confidence and we do it out of love, Lord willing, hopefully. Because we know that as we go with His gospel, He is going to bring His people to Himself. How do we know who His people are? They believe. They turn and believe. I mean, you can't run around pulling up people's hair to see if they have an E on the back of their neck tell if they're elect, right? No, they, they respond to the gospel. And it might be your day today and somebody else's day. You can't, just because somebody rejects the gospel, you can't necessarily say that person's not elect and just wipe them out. Paul, look at Paul, how long? Jesus knocked him off his horse. 
All who were appointed must believe. All who are appointed will believe. Look at John. I'm just trying. This is Jesus. Not me. John 6, 37 to 40. Now watch this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Every one that the Father has given to me will come to me. And in the end, there will be an innumerable horde from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, and language around His throne, Revelation 5. Everyone, all that the Father gives me, all that have been appointed will believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Stop. Here's another thing that people say that's not true. Well, I might want to come and he might tell me I'm not elect. Oh, shut up. No, the word defines what happens. None, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why? We come because he's at work in us. To draw us. And He does that through the Gospel so that we see our sin and our need of a Savior and we see that Savior in Christ who died for us and who was raised and who tells us, who promises us that if we trust in Him, we will be forgiven of all of our sins. Cleansed and clothed in His righteousness and accepted in the family of God. He says, I have come down. Now watch in verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up the last day. And then comes, here comes the belief part. For this is the will. I love the sovereignty and responsibility or belief in this text in verse 39 and 40. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up in the last day. Again, how do I know I'm one who's given to Him? Because by His grace I come to faith in Him. Appointing produces faith. What comes first? The appointing, the election, the choosing, the giving to the Son in eternity past before there was a molecule and Christ comes at the right time, born under His law, to live to fulfill all righteousness, to die to pay the sins for the sins of His people, to be raised proving it's all true, to be reigning and seeing His gospel go to the ends of the earth, to draw everyone given to Him to Himself so I can have confidence as I go witness that His word will not return to Him void and that every one of His people will be drawn. I might be a seed planter, a reaper, but I can trust in Him. This is how William Carey worked for years and years and years in India with no fruit. But he knew this. And this sustained him. And he saw himself building a foundation and sowing seeds. And eventually, great harvest came. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. I'm fighting for your faith this morning. I'm not trying to come against you and make you angry or anything like that. Just wanting to set you free. To embrace God and His glory and His sovereignty. To rest in Him and to be fruitful in His service. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. Now watch what he says to the Thessalonians and watch this carefully. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Now watch. Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. 
Now here's the means. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the God that, that ordains the end also ordains the means. The God that chose the people and gave them to his son has ordained everything in that line to bring them to himself through the gospel and take them all the way home. But he says, God chose you, verse 13. As first fruits, through sanctification by the Spirit and believing the truth, through the means, called you through the gospel. See, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work, it has, it's a gospel-centered, Christ-centered work. People, ha they have to hear the gospel. The Spirit works through the gospel and brings them to Himself. How would I give an illustration of this other than Scripture? Because how would I be able to say what God did in the heart of somebody if God hadn't revealed it. I want to give you an illustration from the book of Acts. We'll come there when we get to chapter 16. But a woman named Lydia. Look in Acts 16. It'll be on the, on the screen. You'll see this happen in an individual's life. So, Macedonian call right before this. And they're going to Philippi. It says in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And following, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi. Okay. They're in Philippi. We have a book called Philippians. About, to that church. From there to Philippi. Which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. A Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath. We went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed that there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke. Now watch this plural to the women who had come together. So they've gone out. They, where do people gather? Where, and they've gone to the people with the gospel. And there's a group of people there and they go to speak to them about Jesus. Right now watch this. This is beautiful. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. That means she was saved. She was just maybe a proselyte. Now watch this. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, see, she'd just been converted. And her household as well. She urged us saying. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. But what happened in the midst of the gospel being presented. The spirit was powerfully at work. Opened her heart to the truth of Christ being the Messiah. So that she turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus. But what made the difference was the Lord opening her heart. The Lord applying the gospel. She didn't of her own turn and believe it. It was the Lord who opened her heart. Listen, we're all Reformed Christians when we pray, aren't we? Because we always are praying for people to God to change people's hearts. That'll only match up with what I've been trying to teach you. 
God, bring them to faith. Help them to see their sin. Help them to see Christ as Savior. Help them open their heart to the gospel. Lydia was appointed. So Lydia was drawn to the Son by the Spirit applying the gospel. God opening her heart to pay attention to what was happening. The chosen choose God and not the other way around. Because left to ourselves, we will never, ever, ever choose Christ. Remember John 3? Those who do evil things refuse to come into the light. We're dead. Ephesians 2 in our trespasses and sins. Romans 1, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness until God acts to bring us from death to life through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I certainly know when I came to faith, I hadn't embraced all this. But this is what happened, and this is what happened to you too. See, God saved you. God came after you. God brought the gospel into your realm and opened your heart to believe it and turn and trust in Jesus so you can rest in Him. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised from the grave the third day. And the gospel offer is a genuine offer. It goes out to all that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, He will receive you. He will save you. He will take you all the way home. But if you do that, why do you think people rejoice that they believed? A lot of this teaching going on. If you do that, it's because God is at work in you. Is God convicting you this morning of your sin and your need of a Savior? Is He drawing you to Jesus? Are you fighting against that? Turn and trust in Christ. And you can know that you too were appointed and your security is in Him. Listen, I get it if all this is new to you, if it's hard for you, it was for me too. I had a lot of rationalism in me that had to be rooted out and still does. And I don't understand all this. I mean, fully, any more than I, under, I can fully comprehend the Trinity. I mean, try, don't try it. It'll drive you crazy. One God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Right? Or Christ, fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. One person, not two. A lot of things in Scripture that have mystery, but things that are clearly revealed, we embrace whether we fully can comprehend them or not. One of the things that, that happens when you're new to this, and maybe you're resisting this, you'll say, why not him? Why not her? Why not them? Why? And as you mature in it, you go, why me? Why me? I came to see, I fully believe that this is what the Word teaches. And it points us to a greater mind where sovereignty and responsibility are both true. And all the errors come from one trying to wash out the other, don't they?
Let's get a few things we should take away and we'll be done. What should this doctrine do in our heart? That God chose us. We didn't choose Him. We would have never chosen Him. We would have continued all the way to run to the grave without faith. We would have judged ourselves like the Jews here. We would have judged ourselves unworthy of eternal life. But He chose us. He came to save us. He brought us to Him. Well, if we rightly understand it, it produces humility. It should produce a humility in us. I needed a Savior and I couldn't save myself and I would have never chosen Christ if left to my own. Therefore, my faith is owed to God's grace and God's appointment. This doctrine humbles us and lays us at His feet. And it should produce gratitude, number two. I was rescued from my own evil heart and my self-death sentence. And so were you. If you're trusting in Jesus. And so can you be if you're not trusting in Jesus. But if you will trust in Jesus. Because he turns away none who come to him. I am grateful for my salvation. Because none of it was of me. I remember. I was converted as an adult. And one of the advantages that gives you. Is remembering how I was running from God. Wanted nothing to do with God. And he began to work in me and bring questions into my mind and drew me into his word and showed me that there's a savior. So that I and he showed me all of this. He just showed me Christ. So that I turned and trust in Christ. But that says nothing special of me because all I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Same with you. If you're trusting in Christ, it's all His grace, so you can be grateful. How about this? Number three, it should produce hope for others. No one is beyond His grace. No one is too strong for Him. You have people in your family maybe that you're tempted to give up on because they're too wicked. They'd never come to Jesus. How about Paul? Saul. Murdering the church. He was a pretty bad guy. Doing it in religious clothes. Instead of striking him dead, God saved him and made him an apostle and he wrote a lot of our New Testament. Keep praying. Keep witnessing. I mean, don't be a jerk about it. If people tell you, I don't hear that anymore. Wait for opportunities. My brother was like that. My brother made fun of me to no end. Until God humbled him. And a few weeks before his death, laying in the hospital bed, afraid to die, he was willing to hear, by God's grace, hear the gospel. Don't give up. Keep praying. If they're breathing, there's hope. God does amazing things. So it produces hope for others. We don't give up on people because we know God can save anyone. And then it fuels confidence and boldness in witness. Listen, all who were given to the Son will come to Him and God will use me. He will use you in that process. He's commanded us to go with the gospel. He tells us His word doesn't return to Him void. He tells us people must hear about Jesus. So go in confidence because of your sovereign God through prayer and witness and be willing to plant seeds. Be willing to be rejected. But also know that that word will never return void.
all given to the Son will come to Him. And listen, it's often said that these doctrines of God's sovereignty quench evangelism, quench missions. No wrong-headed ideas about these doctrines of sovereignty will do that. But if it's producing humility and gratitude and love for God, it will send us forth. Like Isaiah, here I am, send me. Nobody was more reformed than Jesus. Or Paul, who taught a lot of these things. How about Augustine, early church father? How about Calvin? Ooh, boogeyman. Luther. William Carey I talked about. Jonathan Edwards, greatest mind America's ever produced. On fire for missions because of God's sovereignty. George Whitfield, one of the best preachers ever lived. Reformed. Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon. You can't accuse him of not being evangelistically minded. John MacArthur. John Piper, Mark Dever, R.C. Sproul. Men who understand the truth. Rightly, these doctrines fueled a passion for missions, evangelism, witness. And when we rightly understand them. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. When you first come, here's give you a little relief. For the first year after you embrace the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of God's sovereignty and election, you know what people call that? The cage phase. You know what that means? You should be locked in a cage for a year until you mature enough to be able to share these things with people in a way that's edifying. Because we go around and beat people up. Oh, you're not reformed? You don't believe in election? Well, what's wrong with you? you know, I mean, we have to be careful with our enthusiasm. But rightly grasped and rightly understood, it makes us patient. It makes us humble. It makes us grateful. It makes us hopeful. It makes us compassionate. The doctrine of election is not given to us that we might be proud and argue about it and win arguments. It's given to us that we, because it's true. And that we might have confidence and rest in God and be faithful to Him. To live for Him and be on mission for Him. Like thunder, this stuff can be scary at first. But we grow to see it as glorious. As a revelation of our glorious Savior and His love for us. As a revelation of His power and of His mercy of His majesty. Not one of us deserves salvation. Trust in God. Be faithful with the gospel. Watch Him work in people's lives. See, that thunderbolt, this thunderbolt, this verse rocked my world that day as I was reading my Bible. I was wrong. Election was true. I saw it for the first time. I didn't in it then and still don't fully understand it. But I honestly, to the core of my belief, being believed, that's what the Word teaches. So we embrace it in humility. It is for God's glory. It is for our good. And it is necessary food that we might be the confident, bold witnesses 
that we need to be. So believe the word. Go with the gospel. Oh, talk if you struggle. You don't have to believe this. I mean, nobody's going to reject you or abandon you. You don't have to believe everything that I believe. But I honestly believe it's what the word teaches. So believe the word. Go with the gospel. The mission, here's how, the mission will succeed. We're commanded to take a hill that he's promised we will take. Through hardship, yes, maybe. Struggle, suffering. But the mission is sure. The people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to Jesus and be around his throne. And listen, if you will turn from sin and trust him this morning, he will receive you. Because that shows he's at work in you. Producing that faith. It is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'll let you go read that. So believe the word. Go with the gospel. The mission will succeed. Trust God to bring to faith every one of his children. And like our text says, all of those appointed to eternal life will believe. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe your word and help us to believe everything your word teaches. Help us to believe your word about your sovereignty, to believe it about our responsibility. To walk in faith through this dark and troublesome world and to be light and salt for you. You are sovereign. You are in control. You have us here for a purpose. You are reigning for a purpose. And that's to see your gospel go to the ends of the earth. Help us to love you and to be joyfully part of that process knowing that you are pleased to use weak, needy, insufficient people to accomplish your great work of making disciples of every nation. Thank you Lord Jesus, that you came to live for us and fulfill all righteousness by perfectly keeping the law that we had broken in thought, word, and deed. Thank you that you took our sin and died to pay the penalty for our sin, taking the wrath of God due us onto you, and that you paid it in full, accomplishing a true salvation, a full salvation, not just a possible salvation that your spirit applies to your people through the gospel. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For this is how God loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Trust and rest in Jesus. Go with the good news about Jesus. He will use you to accomplish His mission. Oh God, have mercy on us. Bring us to faith. Grow us in grace. Bless Your Word. May it run and be glorified. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.